Good morning and welcome as we wrap up our series on spiritual warfare. Today's scripture is in Revelation 21 if you'd like to go ahead and turn there. The last two weeks we've talked about the reality of spiritual warfare and the weapons of spiritual warfare. No doubt, waging war in the spiritual realm is hard, but we must remember the single most encouraging truth about spiritual warfare. Victory is guaranteed. You can read all about it in Revelation chapters 19 through 22, which describes how all the enemies of God, the devil, sin, sickness, sorrow, and death are utterly defeated. In Revelation 21, 1 through 4, one of the most beautiful passages in all the Bible, we read these words. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. In this day of COVID and social upheaval, I don't know about you, but I can hardly wait for these things to happen. When all of the suffering and pain that we endure has been eliminated, it sounds so beautiful, but we're not there yet, and we don't know when it's going to happen. In the meantime, though, there's a very important question that you and I need to ask ourselves. Are we doing our part to help win the battle? Our part, you ask? I thought Jesus was going to win the battle. Well, I think maybe it's more accurate to say that Jesus guarantees the victory, but we don't stand around on the sidelines waiting till it happens. No, there's plenty of fighting ahead, and he expects that all of his followers will be engaged in the battle. How do we know that? Well, look at the next verse in chapter 21, verse 5. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Notice Jesus says, I am making everything new. Present tense. Not I have made, not I will make, but I am making all things new. Some people think Revelation is a book that deals only with the future. But really, nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus is interested in making all things new today. Jesus is waging war against the forces of evil today. And how does he do that? Through you and me, the body of Christ. You know, the original 12 apostles were just as fascinated with end times as we are today. They plied Jesus with questions about when the end would come and how they would know, but he never told them what they wanted to hear. Instead, he said to them, that's not for you and me to know. Only the Father knows. The most important thing is that you work on my behalf until it does happen. In Matthew 25 alone, Jesus tells three different parables, and each one makes clear Jesus expects to find us busy and faithful upon His return. He expects each one of us will be doing our part to bring about the victory. When I was about to take my first job as a teenager, my dad sat me down 
and told me that when it comes to getting the job done, there are basically three kinds of employees. First are those who are actively preventing anything from happening. They don't cooperate and they don't want to learn how. They're always late for work and dogging it on the job, just worthless. Second are those who don't prevent progress, but they don't contribute either. They're on time, they're willing to do what they're told, but they're completely passive, standing around with their hands in their pockets. But then there are those who want to accomplish something and do whatever is needed to make it happen. They think about their projects, they anticipate what is needed, and they work well with their team. He also made it clear that the first two options were not available to me. When I consider the battle that we're facing, I believe the body of Christ falls into these same three categories. Those who are actually preventing victory, those who aren't contributing anything, good or bad, and those who are on the front lines giving their all to serve the King. I wonder this morning, what kind of Christ follower are you? Which group would you fall into? It's incredibly sad, but there are Christians who are working against the cause of Christ. How can this be, you might ask? How could someone who names Jesus as Lord work against Him? Well, typically this happens when we come up with our own agenda, deciding for Jesus what the kingdom is really all about and taking matters into our own hands. We may have the best of motives, but if we're not careful, the initial motives are soon forgotten and it becomes all about us. That's exactly what happened to Peter the night that he betrayed Jesus. When the soldiers came to get Jesus and arrest him, he attacked them, cut off one of them ear. Now his motive was to protect his friend, but before the night was over, Peter's only agenda was to save his own skin. I could point to several modern day examples, but I'll speak of one that seems rather prevalent today. Some people believe the way to advance the cause of Christ is to promote certain cultural and political perspectives. Some are conservative in their viewpoint, while others are liberal. The conservatives tend to equate the United States with the kingdom of God. And one of the most important measures of Christian faithfulness is patriotism and a commitment to their view of how things should be in the United States. The liberals, on the other hand, tend to equate the kingdom of God with a particular cause, and their measure of Christian faithfulness is how committed one is to the cause. Now, what these two groups have in common is a prioritization of their perspective over the kingdom of God. Both groups have forgotten the words of Jesus when he said to Pontius Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. There are other believers who aren't necessarily working against Christ, but they aren't working for Him either. They have become so enamored with this world that they give no thought to the world that is coming, the one Jesus calls us to fight for. The decision to follow Christ isn't much more really than checking a box so that they can get on with doing what's really important. The way they spend their time and their money clearly reflects a priority other than Jesus and His kingdom. Reading the Bible, spending time in prayer are optional at best and usually ignored altogether. As Jesus said, the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things have captured their attention. 
When I first met my friend Steve, he was on fire for the gospel. He was called to the mission field and was doing everything that he could to get there. He was a missions major at school. He went on short-term mission trips. He was even active in a local prison ministry as well. When we graduated, he had some debt, so he went to work for the local power company. No surprise, he did well, and within a year he had paid off his debts. He also got the attention of his superiors, who offered him a promotion and more money. He accepted, but told me it was just for a year or two so that he could have some savings. Well, two years turned into three, four, and so on. And the last time I spoke with him, he had been with that company for 23 years, made scads of money, owned a couple of homes, had traded in his first wife for a newer model, and actually laughed that he had ever thought about going on the mission field. He was glad that he had figured out what really mattered in life, making money and making a name for himself in the business world. Well, thanks be to God, there is a third group of believers who understand clearly their God-given responsibility. They understand this world is not their home, and for the sake of Christ and His kingdom, they fight. They aren't perfect, but they're focused on serving Jesus. Some are in full-time Christian ministry, some are in the workplace, some are serving in the home, but wherever they serve, they are a light in the darkness, holding out the gospel of truth to a lost and broken world. Like everyone else, they suffer, they deal with pain and tragedy, and they struggle with sin, but they don't lose hope because they know victory is sure, according to the words of Revelation 19. Listen to these words that John wrote. And then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, and like the loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Then the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. That's right. One day, all who have labored for the Lord and loved His appearing will sit down with Him at a banquet. Christ and His church will be united forever. And all will be as God intended it to be from the very beginning. You know, Jesus knew there would be a long, hard fight before that day came and that we could become easily discouraged, perhaps even to the point of giving up. And that's one of the reasons that He gave us the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. In Matthew 26, He spoke these very important words. Then He took a cup, and when He had given thanks, He gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Yes, friends, Jesus has given us the Lord's Supper as a means of encouragement to remind us that a day is coming when we are going to sit down with Him face to face 
at the wedding supper of the Lamb. We're going to celebrate the great victory that we have in Christ, and we're going to celebrate the fact that He has called us to Himself. As we come to the Lord's table today, I want to encourage you to take some time and think, what am I doing to serve Christ? Does my life reflect the fact that we're in a battle and that I need to be doing all I can to serve Him? That victory is assured and that as I partake of the Lord's Supper, I'm reminding myself and the world that one day there'll be a great supper, a supper like no other when we dine with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Won't you pray with me? Father, we give you thanks for the gift of bread and juice and for what they represent. We're thankful, Lord, that they are a reminder of the great sacrifice that you made for us, but they are also an encouragement for what is coming. We pray now, Lord, as we partake of this bread and this juice, may they be for us the body and blood of our Lord Jesus.